Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 112, 21st Century Space Travel. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. If you're new to the show, we bring in the experts to talk about all different parts of our space agency and human spaceflight. Planning spaceflight missions can be tough. You hear us today discussing the Artemis program, which sends human to the surface of the moon in a few short years. These types of plans, even years down the road, are ambitious and aggressive when talking about human spaceflight. And a major part of being successful is overcoming budgetary, technological, and policy constraints way in advance. You're probably familiar with President Kennedy's declaration to Congress in May of 1961, which was reiterated at Rice University in Texas in September of 62. He declared that we would put a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade. NASA met this challenge with the right support and funding to match the goal, but later years proved that this would not always be the case. Decades passed, many presidents went by, and NASA's exploration goals seemed ever so on the horizon. What NASA needed was a way to focus its efforts and think strategically. Best way to do that? Long-term planning. It was 1999 when NASA put together the, the Decadal Planning Team under Administrator Dan Golden, which would dedicate time to laying out exactly how NASA could achieve its goals over a long period of time and fight for a budget that would support these efforts. The Decadal Planning Team would see changes in its name and direction in following years, but its roots would remain the same to focus on where we're going and exactly how we're going to get there. Today, we're sitting down with Stephen Garber and Glenn Asner, co-authors of the book titled Origins of 21st Century Space Travel, colon, A History of NASA's Decadal Planning Team and the Vision for Space Exploration, 1999 to 2004. This book examines NASA in those years, which saw the formation of this planning team, the tragic Columbia accident, and the forward direction of NASA after the accident, which would shape how the agency is laid out today. So let's take a deep dive into historical space policy with Steve Garber and Glenn Asner. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and county. All right, so so let's get into the book. First, it's called Origins of 21st Century Space Travel, a history of NASA's decadal planning team and the vision for space exploration 1999 to 2004. We're going to take a snapshot of those years in NASA's history. Can you tell me why you decided to focus on these years? What, what was it that draw your attention to, to those specific time? Well, we were actually asked to write this book. Oh. It was kind of an odd circumstance. Um, well, we were asked to write a study, not this book per se. Mm. Um, but w the day before I started work in the NASA History Headquarters program, I was asked by the chief historian if I wanted to um, co-author a study with Steve on the uh, decadal planning team. And we were told that at the start, so we both agreed, and we were told at the start that the uh, decadal planning team had led to the vision for space exploration. We were a little bit skeptical, and so we did uh, a much broader study, and we, we did a lot more research, and, and indeed we, we came up with uh, the, uh, we confirmed that 
that the uh, visions for space exploration and the decadal planning team had very strong linkages and decided to make it a, f a full book. And in terms of what these things are, decadal planning team and vision for space exploration, really it's it's a group of people sitting down and thinking about where do we want to be in terms of human spaceflight in X number of years and how are we going to get there? Right. We can talk a little bit about the two pieces. Um, I like to think of this as two bookends to our story. The decadal planning team started in 1999, and then the end of our story is really in 2004 with the unveiling of the vision for spa space exploration by President George W. Bush. So we can talk a little bit about the two bookends, if you will, and how those came about. That's really our story. Perfect. And actually, that's what I was hoping to do. I was hoping to really dive deep into this this moment in time. And I actually had the pleasure of reading the book to prepare for this uh, interview. I know it starts off with sort of setting the context pre-1999, in fact, even going back to the early parts of human space flight at NASA. It even starts with uh, Von Braun and, and the context of formation with NASA going through the Apollo program. Um, I think the reason that you wanted to start with that was um, there were elements of, of planning that sort of eventually, uh, I guess, led to what was to be later in 1999, the decadal planning team. So how does that start? How, do, how does the book start with actually setting the context of, of NASA and, and the policy thus far that got us to the point where we needed a decadal planning team? Sure. Well, the way I like to think about it is that chapter two is um, the prehistory, in air quotes, if you will, mm -hmm. of our story. So before 1999. And... Uh, one thing I've learned in working in history over the years is that it seems like there's a prehistory to practically every topic you think about. Somebody's always thought about some aspect of it uh, before you did, right? Mm. So the way, um, and to put it in a little more context, uh, I can give you two examples of other monographs that have been written that are relevant. One is a bibliography that a colleague at, at JSC did, uh, Johnson Space Center did, um, uh, that's a, it's a bibliography of works about spaceflight before um, the space age began with the launch of Sputnik, so pre-1957. So this includes lots of literature from Tsiolkovsky and other people who are thinking about how um, space could be accessed. So there's a whole bibliography on that. And then there's another bibliography that our office published uh, about uh, 20 years ago or so that covers literally hundreds of planning studies for sending humans to Mars. So in between this, um, there's all these other um, blue ribbon task forces. There are many. Um, there, there are the roles of advocacy organizations. There's um, what's called the von Braun paradigm of exploration um, that was named after Werner von Braun, of course. Mm -hmm. um, all these different ideas that had been sort of circulating, distilling, marinating, what have you, over time. So th these ideas of of sending humans beyond low Earth orbit and um, 
doing accompanying and integrating robotic spaceflight, people had thought about these things for many years before. So it's not like the story, um, the story begins in earnest in 1999, but there was a whole prehistory to it. Right, yeah, and, and a lot of it has to do not only with that, but with the, the politics that were surrounding this. Um, I know, especially during the Apollo program, you know, you had you had funding that matched the ambitious goal of getting humans to the surface of the moon by the end of the decade. And, you know, I think a lot of um, NASA and others really believe that this trend would continue and I think there was just these waves of inconsistency throughout the years that eventually led and one of those elements that you're talking about with with what set up the decadal planning team was the um, it was called the SEI I believe it's uh, space exploration initiative under HW um, Bush to sort of get take that von Brown paradigm of, of you know what are the steps we need to take to get to get there um, and it was this idea, one of the ideas of focusing the NASA's efforts, right? Right, right. So in 1989, on the 20th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, uh, President George H.W. Bush stood on the steps of the National Air and Space Museum and announced what became known as the Space Exploration Initiative, or SEI. And the idea behind it was to send humans, astronauts, back to the moon and then on to Mars. So this um, this was the first, if you will, f formal, I'm sort of waving my hand to indicate quasi-formal <laughs> program to, to do that, to go um, send humans beyond low Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. Now, there was, there was changes of, you know, sending humans beyond low Earth orbit, but really thinking about how that was going to happen, you know, um, where would you fit in low Earth orbit? Where would you fit in the moon? I know there was, we were going back and forth. There was this thing called the Mars reference mission of, right. I think it was an, a something where if we were to just go, you know, focus all of our efforts on going to Mars and sending a single mission of astronauts to Mars, skipping all the other steps, what would that take? Right. So they were, they were thinking of all, not only just like, where can we go, but what, what are the processes, steps, years, funding requirements that would be needed for X, Y, and Z? Right. Well, the way I think of the Mars uh, reference mission is it's sort of like a template for how we would send humans to Mars mm -hmm. and addresses some of the different technical uh, subsystems, if you will, that we'd need to think about. So, for example, propulsion or building a spacecraft that could accommodate um, a small crew for the six-month journey to the Red Planet, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Think about all the uh, human factors, all, the, all these different things. It sort of lays out what do we need to know, what do we need to do to get there. But um, so that's sort of a plan that was on the shelf, if you will, but it was just a template plan. Um, in the meantime, there were lots of people leading, lots of people and lots of circumstances leading up to 1999 where people were thinking, well, is that really what we want to do, uh, is send humans directly to Mars or on to the moon and then uh, and then to Mars. So, for example, the Space Task Group in 1969, shortly before the Apollo 11 landing, they were already looking at the next big thing for NASA in terms of human spaceflight. And there were a couple of options. One was uh, Earth-orbiting space station. One was basically the space shuttle. And one was sending humans uh, 
beyond low Earth orbit that way. So it ended up that um, the space task group recommended building a shuttle in part because that was the least expensive option and that's what President Nixon adopted. Um, but people were thinking about, that's just one example of how people were thinking about all these different options. Mm -hmm. Now, if we kind of fast forward just just right before the decadal planning team, I think one a key person in this story of this snapshot of 1999 to 2004 and what happened, a key person in that story is Dan Golden, who was the administrator. I think he was the longest serving administrator of NASA, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes. But he sort of laid the foundation pre-decadal planning team. Um, I know one of his slogans was faster, better, cheaper. Uh, you know, he had a lot of focus on Mars. And there were a lot of good things that were happening pre-1999. Uh, you had this discovery of a meteorite that could, you know, it brought up more questions of, is there really life on Mars? There were like maybe little hints in there. You had great things like Pathfinder. You had the Hubble servicing mission. Things were things were going well, right, in the late 90s. 90s. Well, yes, for the most part they were. Uh, the Faster, Better, Cheaper initiative was uh, really uh, considered a great success. And uh, like you said, uh, Pathfinder and Sojourner uh, rovers were uh, really um, very, very uh, highly acclaimed. The, there were, were a couple notable failures. Uh, hmm. You had the 1999 Mars Polar Lander and then the Mars Climate Orbiter, um, which uh, impacted Dan Golden's thinking at that time. And, and uh, also the uh, space station and uh, the shuttle were starting to encounter some cost overruns. So uh, he was really starting to think at that point in time uh, that we needed to um, start planning for the post-shuttle and post-station um, period. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of where where this all kicks off. Right. So so 1999, the formation of the decadal planning team. Let's get right into it. Uh, what were some of the first steps to get to what would be the DPT? Uh, well, if I may, um, I just wanted to mention a couple of the reasons that Dan Golden wanted to establish a decadal plan planning team. When we interviewed him for this book, uh, he just sort of ticked them off in quick fashion, but the more we thought about them, the more significant they seemed. So in no particular order, um, he mentioned um, four different factors. One was, this again, this is 1999, so the next year would be a new uh, uh, presidential election and a new administration because President Clinton had already served two terms. So he wanted to prepare a slate, a, a game plan for the next president, whoever that would be. So that's, that's one item. Um, Another thing was he wanted to prepare for such a time where there would be a um, like a, a, a bull market, if you will. There would be money available in the economy f to do big things in space, right? Mm -hmm. And then a, th a third thing was he wanted to integrate uh, robotic spaceflight and human spaceflight. Previously, he felt that... Um, Culturally, NASA had suffered from operating under these distinct silos, if you will, where uh, the people who did robotic space science didn't really cooperate much with the people who did human spaceflight. And then last, and perhaps least, I don't know, he, <laughs> um, he sort of decried what was 
the slogan that was commonly heard at the time of Mars or bust. And by that, what he meant was he wanted a truly compelling rationale to send humans to Mars, if, if there was one. And he wanted, a, a more, even more than that, he wanted a truly compelling rationale to do whatever the game plan would be, not just talk about um, things that sounded cool, but why are we doing them fundamentally? Mm-hmm. And I know one of, the th- one of the, I guess, main items to make this successful was to have the right people. Um, I know there are some key players in this whole story, and I'm, I might butcher the name, so just correct me if I if I do. Steve Izakowitz? Yeah. Izakowitz, okay. Izakowitz. Yeah. Okay. I know he's a very key player in this. I believe at the time in 1999, he was with the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, um, Chief of Science and Space Programs. But there is also Jim Garvin, Lisa Guerra. Um, some some other folks that he recruited to really focus on these initiatives. Well, so uh, uh, Steve Isakowitz over at OMB, he came up with the idea, he and his team, to give NASA $5 million per year over the next few years to initiate these studies, which became the decadal planning team. Um, the people at NASA, like uh, Lisa Guerra and... and um, Garvin and Harley Thronson were chosen by um, the heads of the Office of Spaceflight and, and um, Science. Mm-hmm. Joe Rothenberg was in charge of spaceflight, and Ed Weiler was in charge of science at that time. I see. So it was, taking, it, was, it was assigning these folks to different areas and having them focus their efforts on unifying into a common goal. That's correct. And it was top-down. It was, it was control of this, and the inspiration, of course, came from Dan Golden and Steve Isakowitz, but it was really being managed at NASA headquarters and they, by, by, the, by the heads of spaceflight and, and science, and they were pulling from the NASA centers. But the idea was that whatever policy would be developed would be um, implemented by headquarters and the priorities would be set by headquarters. Right. Weiler and Rothenberg were uh, dubbed the stakeholders and so they they got to choose who would be on this team. Okay, well, they were they were some of the leadership of this decadal planning team and and you were mentioning a top-down sort of strategy and I believe that was, you know, the decadal planning team was I guess organized or maybe executed in phases, and that was part of phase one, which was the charter, was this top-down strategy. And I believe part of that was a forward-looking strategy, not to not to look at past concepts as much. And I know one of the big key drivers here was to be science-driven and technology-enabled. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the what was the I guess reasoning behind that? Why why be science-driven? Well, the, they. Th- Part of it was Dan Golden was looking for a new rationale for spaceflight, and um, a lot of people at NASA at that time also thought that the scientific goals, as they were being articulated by the uh, science community, the National Academy of Sciences, were really solid ones that deserved consideration and could really help set the pace for uh, future spaceflight and determine where we should go for how long we should go. So. Um, Dan Golden, uh, I think, grabbed onto that, and some of the, the personnel on the team reflected that desire to have science 
the scientific goals determining the pace and the, the destinations. And the other half of that was technology enabled. And uh, the idea there would really be that technology, are, the state of technology would influence the pace of, of the exploration program as well and, and where we could go. Yeah. Um, I know that um, in terms of being science-driven, I can, I, can, I can say confidently now, you know, working very closely with the International Space Station program, that's definitely one of the main drivers of communication and effort, even on the space station now. So that's, that's definitely still true today. You know, when we're talking about laying the foundation for what is 21st century space travel, I, I believe that's still true today. Um, I know, especially in these early phases, I believe one of the one of the ideas was to be quote destination independent. You know, like designing the technologies and and being technology abled and understanding and and driving toward that science, but being you know having no place to go initially, I believe had its own hazards. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, that was a big discussion from the very beginning, um, from the very first meeting was uh, not being uh, tied to any specific destination, although they would later kind of uh, lay out clear destinations to go. The, the real concept here is to develop the capabilities to go wherever you want, wherever uh, later on the science determined or whatever other uh, factor determined would be the best place to go. Mm -hmm. And I know one of the funding strategies was this other quote, buying by the yard. What, did that, what does that mean? Well, I, I, it's really the, the same concept. Of, uh, it's, it's, it's related to, to the other science-driven technology enabled in the sense that you have to devise the program to sustain the political wins and the budgetary ups and downs. Hmm. And so we're... And and this is what distinguishes the um, DPT. This is one of the things that distinguishes DPT from what eventually was the vision for space exploration. The concept at the very beginning was that, uh, under Dan Golden, was that this was not, um, a, a big announcement was not likely, a big announcement of sending humans beyond low Earth orbit. So the idea was really to, to slowly, gradually develop these capabilities. So when uh, the time came, if there was a shift in public opinion or a shift in NASA's budgetary fortunes, then we would have the technologies in place to do it. But we couldn't do that with one, like with a big Apollo announcement. We, they were really thinking this was going to be gradual. And so we had to... Uh, slowly develop those capabilities and technologies. Mm. Right, and sort of the idea that we knew basically what kinds of technologies we needed, so we might as well get started on those. So whether it's in-space propulsion or um, crew and uh, crew, crew and life sciences safety uh, issues to maintain the health of the crew on the mission, long-duration mission, those kinds of things. We knew what we needed to develop, so we might as well just get started as much as we could sort of building generic technologies that then could be tailored toward the particular mission. Right, and then that eventually led to, I guess in 2000, phase two of this whole decadal planning team was actually thinking of specific architectures. And I know one of the key points here in this story was the Y River Retreat. What happened there? 
Well, <laughs> uh, some people uh, who participated in the Decatur planning team felt that it, it was certainly a watershed moment, but not in a good way. Mm. Um, and for a variety of reasons, um, there were some go- golden sort of uh, the DPT participants at the time sort of felt that golden lost interest in what they were doing when before he was very interested in what they were doing and joked about being part of the team himself and this kind of thing. And it turned out that there were some other things that were weighing on the administrator's mind at the time, such as um, ISS cost overruns that not everybody knew about within NASA at the time and other things. So it sort of shifted a little bit. But... um, and things moved on from there a little bit. But um, at the same time, they were still sort of thinking about um, some of their earlier goals and um, this phrase of um, sneaking up on Mars came about a little bit earlier before Hmm. then. And um, it's worth just mentioning that the idea was sort of, as Glenn was saying before, that we would have sort of a plan on the shelf for when circumstances dictated it because... The idea was that a lot of people in the space community wanted to send humans to Mars, but we, again, needed to find a compelling rationale and the right time frame, the right time period to initiate such a big program. So until then, we, the Decato planning team sort of worked, not in secret, but they were, their work was what was called embargoed, meaning it wasn't um, widely discussed with other NASA people and certainly not outside because the idea was that they would be given some figurative space to work out these different ideas for how to build um, these technologies they they would need, that we, NASA, would need to have these science-driven missions. Right, yeah, it was, it was kind of enabling the capability so when that time did come, right. they were already ahead of the game in terms of technology and capability. Right. Okay. Right. Now, now after that, I believe uh, this is when George W. Bush comes in, and now we're starting to get away from the Decatur planning team. I know there's some changes in administration and then even the name of Decatur planning team. So what's happening there? Oh, so at that point, the Decadal planning team becomes the next exploration team, hmm. um, or or wait, Na- NASA. NASA exploration team. Uh, next, next, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, all these names get a little hard to, <laughs> to, to keep in mind. Um, and and actually, soon thereafter, we also have a change in in leadership over in NASA. Uh, Sean O'Keefe succeeded Dan Golden as as the NASA administrator, and at the the level of uh, the uh, planning team, uh, Jim Garvin, who uh, was the leader of it, was replaced by uh, Gary Martin, who was then also named the space, space architect. architect. Yeah. yeah, NASA space architect. Space architect. Okay, so so yeah, then a what? Good title, right? <laughs> that is pretty awesome, right? Um, <laughs> so so Sean O'Keefe and Gary Martin. This I believe these leadership changes kind of are are one of the key drivers in. I guess the how the the difference between the Decadal planning team and next. What what's how is how is O'Keefe a little bit different from Golden in terms of the way he's thinking? Well, O'Keefe walked in and he, the first presentation to him uh, from the the team, uh, he was he was really kind of shocked by it. Shocked because 
he thought that's what NASA did. He mm. didn't think this was new. He thought he thought NASA was supposed to be doing this kind of long-term planning all along. And and so he was just kind of surprised that they were keeping it secret, and he was surprised that it was it was such a big deal. Um, he he, and he gave them full uh, room to to go ahead and and do more studies, uh, dig deeper into the the issues that they had been thinking about. Hmm. Now there's some there's some other key drivers here that eventually um, kind of change the way that next is I, I think perceived and a lot of them is just things going on around in the world. We're getting we're now sneaking up on uh, you know September 11th 2001. We got some serious um, some national security. Um, uh, elements, uh, and I believe the director of space policy of national security, I think Jill Klinger, uh, starts getting involved. So there's some there's some external elements outside of NASA that start, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, influencing the the direction there. Well, that that name is Gil Klinger. Just Gil to Klinger. Correct, okay. correct the record. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I you know, nine eleven nine eleven's a huge deal that comes and and totally changes everything for the United States. Mm -hmm. um, a, a key thing that occurred at that time, too, was that Steve Isakowitz uh, moved over. I think that might have been slightly later. But Steve Isakowitz, the, the man who had given the money to start DPT, actually came over as the NASA comptroller. That's right. And so that was, an, that was another just um, kind of boost to this whole um, initiative. Yeah, and right. he's, a, he's a big part of this story. Right. He had worked with O'Keefe at the Office of Management and Budget um, because O'Keefe had previously been the deputy head of the OMB. So they knew each other that way. And then O'Keefe brought him over as the comptroller. Um, the other thing that you alluded to a minute ago, Gary, was this um, idea of sort of the interagency process getting... Uh, geared up mm -hmm. and people such as Gil Coinger at the National Security Council and um, Brett Alexander at the Office of, Sex Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House got involved and then other people from other agencies got involved. That, and, that really starts after Columbia in earnest. Right, yeah. right, right. Mm -hmm. Which is a big part of this story. I know you guys actually dedicated an, a whole chapter to Columbia. Now, now let, let's kind of recap Columbia, what happened there, uh, and, and the significant shift in, at NASA that occurred post-Columbia. Sure. Well, the story that I tell about that is when we interviewed uh, Sean O'Keefe about this, um, Glenn and I started talking to him about Columbia, and I viewed it as sort of a little bit of a... Uh, diversion in the conversation and so I said something to that effect and he said no no Columbia is key to the story of how the vision for space exploration came about so let's talk about that mm -hmm. so uh, that's what um, Sean O'Keefe said so um, the Columbia accident on February 1st 2003 was in fact a huge turning point for NASA in many many ways um, and not the least of which it it enabled what became the vision for space exploration. So we can certainly talk about some of those different aspects. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, another, you know, I alluded to this a little bit earlier as well, but there was a lot going on in the world 
you know, even just at NASA, Columbia was so significant, but even something go around now, you know, we're post 9-11, you have an anxiety of Americans, terrorism, war going on. The The White House is divided um, in, in what NASA is going to do next during this very confusing time that we're in. And now I believe this is where the conversation of, you know, we were talking a little bit about kind of kind of flying under the radar and not really choosing where we are going to go. That This is where the conversation of we need a compelling vision. We need, you know, we need somewhere to go. We need some destination at NASA. And that's where this sort of picks up is post-Columbia. Right. Well, two points to mention here. One is about the process. And I'll just tell another story about Gil Klinger. Mm -hmm. He says that what happened when he got involved was his boss at the time asked him to be sort of a point person to shepherd this through uh, the national security council's policy-making process. They had an established process for national security. And Klinger responded something to the effect of, well, this isn't really national security. It's civilian space, and I don't know much about it, and I don't really want to do this. And his boss, he said it, not that, you know, I'm not going to do it, or, you know, he wasn't grinding his feet in the floor or anything, but he um, he said, he, 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 the way he put it to us was something like, I pushed this away at every opportunity I got. Um, but then finally his boss said to him, well, what's the right thing to do for the president? And then he backed down and realized, okay, I better do this, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that, and that's important because you might, again, ask, well, why was this um, policy process enacted or, or and why was it utilized um, especially post Columbia and it's because there was a specific process available for policymakers on the national security side when there wasn't really on the civilian side there was a domestic policy council and they got involved but they didn't have the same kind of established policy process, um, policy-making process. So that's one thing. The other thing about um, the Columbia accident, of course, it was it was a huge wake-up call for not only everybody at NASA, but everybody in the space community. And people were really um, wondering what sort of wither NASA, if you will, or what's the what what's going to happen next? What's the raison d'etre going to be for NASA if we can't fly humans? Um, and one other um, twist to that story is um, is that shortly after the accident, President George W. Bush um, said something to the effect of we need to, you know, grieve for the astronauts whose lives were lost in this terrible accident. And one of the ways we need to honor their memory is by going back into space with astronauts, right? Mm. And so um, this guy, Brett Alexander, from the Office of Science and Technology Policy, he picked up on that, and he used that little remark by the president to remind other people that he was working with who doubted the wisdom, if you will, of going forward with such a big vision with a small v, um, he reminded them and he said, hey, the president has already said we're going to get back to flying humans in space flight. So anybody who doubts the continued existence of NASA, forget about it. We are going to do this because people were seriously doubting whether NASA could exist. And if it existed, well, what would it do if not human space flight? All this kind of discussion. So that's why it was such a big turning point. Yeah, definitely. And I know that was reflected even the in the investigation 
investigation board of the, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board uh, when when they actually made the report to go to root cause. I know um, when it comes to the actual report, one of the a, a portion of that report actually departed from the norm and started talking about these points that you're that you're saying. You know, we need to explore and 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 source of that as part of the findings of this official report. So it was definitely ingrained in that culture to to continue to explore. Um, I know um, an- another part, you know, and, and you alluded to this a little bit, was the way that the politics and the way the decision-making process works. This is where thing, you know, I guess we're starting to depart from the norm. I know the, the White House rump group uh, was a part of that to sort of shift the way that actual decisions were made, um, whether, you know, the involvement of the National Security Council uh, versus being in civilian space and how that all works. So where was, how did that shift happen from 2003 moving forward? Well, so, I mean, at simultaneously at, at NASA and at the White House right after the Columbia accident, uh, there were groups thinking about what to do next. And as Steve had said, we were in danger of losing the the shuttle program, the mm-hmm. whole spaceflight program. There was some question raised at the very beginning whether or not we should even go ahead uh, with a new shuttle or maybe we need to develop a new vehicle or maybe NASA should bro- be broken up. There were a lot of different ideas being floated around. And as Steve said, when the president indicated he was strongly behind a uh, uh, bringing the space agency back and flying the shuttle again to, to this station, mm-hmm. um, that that shifted everything. And the separate groups that were thinking about it at NASA and the White House came together under the the uh, Gil Klinger at the National Security Council. That's when the policy process started in earnest. And um, that's <laughs> that's when uh, they started to really go back and forth between NASA, uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, the Office of Manage- Management and Budget, um, even the Council of Economic Advisors was were in on it so they started to form a working group after that uh, with representatives of of different agencies including the state department and department of defense i just wanted to add one other thing if you sort of can mentally put yourself in the time period that we're talking about um it can lend some context of what's going on so Again, the Columbia accident happened on February 1st, 2003, and when the real sausage-making of policy happens is later that year, immediately after the Columbia accident and throughout the rest of 2003. And then the vision is announced in January of 2004. Mm. And so going back to the first part of our story, the decadal planning team, and it morphed into Next and things like that. So, But the decadal planning team... Again, they had done this work that in some ways really um, was what Golden had hoped for in that it created a roadmap, to use a jargony term, um, it created a roadmap or a game plan for what NASA could do when the time was right. So people um, like Gil Klinger and Brett Alexander and other people at NASA could um, pull those plans and ideas off the shelf right after the Columbia accident when all this big discussion is going on and sort of big thoughts are being uh, considered about what was going to happen with NASA after the Columbia accident. Well, of course, it was both the plans that were there that were in place that were still in motion and the people that had been doing that work. Right. So 
Steve Isakowitz, Gary Martin, all of those people were available to then uh, support NASA's positions in negotiations with the White House over what the new vision for space exploration would look like. Right. Yeah, and that was a that was a dynamic time when if 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 you read through the book, I mean, you're you're looking at they were considering like everything. Um, I, I I was reading more about there was an an orbital space plane. They were talking about what happens to the International Space Station, what happens to the shuttle, where do you go? You know, there was there was talk about half in low Earth orbit and half beyond low Earth orbit, and what you know every mix in between, calling Mars Mars or calling Mars the Red Planet. Uh, what are you going to do? Yeah, for the next generation. Yeah, right. There was. I mean, this yeah, was right. a very dynamic time. And there, there was were an unusual number of of what are called deputies meetings at the National Security Council. No one could give us an exact figure, but it was somewhere between five and ten, hmm. uh, where they were fleshing out the. They were running the competing proposals and flesh, fle, uh, fleshing out the ideas, but they. I think fairly quickly, I mean, actually before they even started this, everyone knew they were going to return to flight. They were going to uh, retire the shuttle in 2010, and they were going to focus on finishing the ISS. I mean, there there was some agreement among all of the people involved in the process that they, were, that they would do these things and that they would develop a plan that took humans beyond low Earth orbit. There was a little dissent there, but for the most part, 90% of the people who were involved in this process all agreed on, on these elements of it. Right, uh, although it did take a little while to get to that consensus because that time period, right after, immediately after the Columbia accident, it was, as you said, a dynamic time where lots of ideas were being thrown around, mm -hmm. and that's why it was especially useful to have the background work that the Decatur planning team and Next had done already. That's right, and I think one of the one of the things toward the end of this dynamic time where they were actually focusing in on a vision, one of the selling points to the Bush administration was that the uh, this vision itself, having a vision and a destination, was you know one of the one of the reasons why we headed towards this vision for space exploration, this this central team, I, I believe. Um, and that's where there was an actual security directive. I believe it was called National Security Presidential Directive 31. Um, so I guess, how, how does that work, really, when it comes to the direction of where NASA would go and, and signing this NSPD 31? Um, what was the history there? Well, uh, that was, the, so in, with the National Security Council uh, policy-making process, mm -hmm. you had deputies, committees, and then that, that would lead to a kind of final decision uh, by the president in a, in a, with all of the principles from all of the, the major stakeholders in, in the government. So that included um, uh, Marburger, who John was Marburger, the president's science advisor, and then uh, the people like Secretary of Defense, Secretary yeah, of State, um, that kind of thing. A lot of uh, well, Sean O'Keefe was there. So the final decisions were made at this uh, meeting with the president. Who one of the big his his big imprint on it was to say, yes, we're going to do the stepping stones approach with Moon as a. a key initial destination but then we are definitely going on to mars at least in as he as he determined at that point he was he was set on going to mars he was concerned about uh the uh, the um 
roll out of it publicly and how we were going to relate to international partners on right it. and the presidential directive was just sort of if you i use the word just a little loosely here mm. but just sort of the formal um incarnation of the vision for space exploration policy but it's basically what all these um interagency folks agreed upon um, that became the vision for space exploration. I see. A more formal version. Now, this was this is uh you know this was part of that like you said the vision for space exploration and this was as you mentioned this the the right stakeholders when it comes to who was involved in making this presidential directive. Now, do you know how it's different from what we have now? Where where the the where we are now is space policy directive one. Do you know how that's changed? Well. We could talk a little bit about um, uh, directives that way, but um, if we focus on, it might be easier to just sort of focus on uh, the vision for space exploration and how that came about. That might be a little simpler, and then uh, people can understand um, by putting it, by comparison, by, excuse me, by comparing to uh, what's going on now. Okay. So then what is um, what is the vision for space exploration? Because that's, that's I believe, the next step where um, I believe Bush made, uh, made a speech in January of 2004. Well, I, I just uh, wanted to mention in the national security uh, process itself, or in that final meeting with President Bush, there was a decision made there that was critical to, to the whole... Um, operations of NASA for the next 20 years and that decision was to allow a large gap in time between the retirement of the shuttle and the development of the crew exploration vehicle which was the replacement vehicle or the the first flight of the crew exploration vehicle so we had determined at that point one of the key decisions uh, was that we would depend on the Russians to fly our uh, astronauts to the station um, and at that point in time with the vision development process we also determined that it would be uh, the budget would be one billion dollars uh, over five years and eleven billion dollars reprogrammed from from this uh, space station shuttle and other NASA programs um, right. We we should also probably mention the elements of the vision for space exploration itself. Sure. So um, in January of 2004, when President Bush came to NASA headquarters to announce this policy, um, it included several components. The first uh, was to return the shuttle safely to flying again, uh, something that we should not take for granted, um, and then to retire the shuttle safely by 2010 to complete the ISS by 2010, and to develop a new human-rated spacecraft, which became known as the Crew Exploration Vehicle, and then more broadly to go to send humans to, back to the moon, um, to Mars, and then beyond in general. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was, that was the vision. Um, I believe, you know, and that, that's kind of, I believe what was the main focus of this book was 1999 to 2004. Post that speech, though, you know, I think you go a little bit into what 
kind of how that impacted NASA in the future years. You know, there was economic opportunity for for a few companies to engage with this vision of exploration, but there was different international reactions and and how that plan for how funding would happen and 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 support the vision over the next few years on how that was actually implemented. Right. Well, one thing um, there, uh, you mentioned a few different pieces there. So, okay. Um, let me just pull out one piece that um, to to discuss first. One, uh, that's the um, national and international aspect. So, this was developed as a national policy, right? So, we talked a lot about how the national policy was developed uh, with these interagency meetings of uh, different elements of the executive branch. Um, of the government, right? But um, it wasn't designed as an international program per se. So it's not, perhaps not surprising that there was some international criticism afterwards that some international partners of NASA felt like they weren't included um, as much as they would have liked to have been. But sort of the retort to that might be, well, Again, this was developed as a national policy, and if we tried to develop a policy like this with international partners before it was unveiled, that would be just totally um, unworkable in terms of too many people in the room, so to speak. Okay. So then, um, I guess, I guess, uh, yeah. So that there were no. mixed reactions. Now, how about the actual implementation of? the vision um, throughout those next couple of years, including a leadership change from Sean O'Keefe to Michael Griffin. So I'll, I'll just say that um, I, I, I believe that the, the key decision here was to set deadlines to retire the shuttle um, and, and complete the space station. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what comes after it, um, and there are a lot of twists and turns over the next several years, um, but the overarching framework or the the, the uh, key decision here was to set a date to retire the shuttle and set a date to complete the space station. Um, so then uh, in terms of implementation, we had Michael Griffin replace Sean O'Keefe. Um, and, uh, you know, this is also a, another key thing to, to mention in this period is the return to flight. Yes. Um, so, so, uh, at that period of time under Griffin, we returned to flight safely. Mm -hmm. um, we have Bill Gerstenmeyer in charge of space flight, and they changed the process for certifying uh, space shuttle flights, and that was critical as well. So it puts the putting the agency on a, on a solid path and returning to flight without any accidents afterwards does a lot to make sure that we continue to move, that the agency, NASA, continues to move forward with, the, with these plans. And, and they do through the, the end of the administration. Mm -hmm. And to reiterate your point, the focus was to retire the shuttle and complete the space station, which we can say, you know, we've, we've done. And now the space station has been in orbit for, for almost actually 20 years at this point. Um, right. That's right. Yeah, so... Uh, Recapping, you know, the we, we talked in depth about this period of time and even laying the foundation for 
how this planning team morphed into what was the vision for space exploration. You know, like, a, what was that, you know, if, if we were to condense that into just a few, I guess, short sentences, what was that change that really led from the decadal planning team to the next, to the uh, vision for space exploration in just a few short years? Well, I would just say uh, DPT, the decadal planning team, uh, morphed into next and had some other changes along the way. But again, the key, uh, the key marker in the sand, the key event that happened was the Columbia accident, mm-hmm. and then policymaking shifted after that. Well, and I'd I'd add that the people there, there's a continuity people, here right. in people. There's there's. There are changes, but there there's a lot of continuity here in people were, who were holding the torch for for human space flight for for the future of NASA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's even that's even true today. It sort of laid the foundation for what we see as you know NASA even now in 2019. Uh, you know, we're looking at the the International Space Station. The this space shuttle has been retired. We we are still um, uh, relying on the Russian vehicles, but that plan, I mean, I think has remained sort of consistent. But at the same time, we've shifted focus, I guess, from that. Uh, crew exploration vehicle that NASA focused to a more commercial focus, but it did sort of, you know, looking at just that time period, lay the foundation for how for how we see NASA today. Yeah, at the time of the vision development, I'll just add they were there was some discussion about uh, bringing in more private sector partners into mm. it, but that's been a continuity use of contractors and industry. Uh, since since the beginning of NASA, it's more pronounced now, but it doesn't change the basic uh, fact that NASA's providing the infrastructure and providing the the guidance here on, uh, especially for for long term space travel. Yeah, I think I think I was. Um especially excited to talk about this time period today because I think it's important to kind of go back into history and understand these policy changes. And I think it's important to know to set realistic expectations for how we should conduct business in the future. Because like, you know, we did mention this was a very dynamic time and there was a lot of iterations of how you conduct space policy. You're both back to H.W. Bush with the, I believe, Space Exploration Initiative and then changing from the decadal planning team. There was, there was a lot of changes in focus, but I believe understanding that kind of is a good way to to predict the future on how we should go about thinking about space policy and and pl- and long-term planning. Right. I, I agree wholeheartedly, and thank you for your support of history in that <laughs> way. Um, yeah, it, you know, one interesting piece about this is that um, some of the people who were involved in both the DPT and the Vision for Space Exploration policymaking were aware of the previous history, and some of them... Uh, for example, it didn't want to make the perceived mistakes of the space exploration initiative. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and they knew that um, many teams had tackled similar issues before, so they wanted to be able to do something different to, con- to contribute in a different way. 
Mm-hmm. But the I think I think the ultimate idea, and maybe you have a different interpretation of this, but I think the ultimate idea is is you want NASA to achieve the goals, right? You, you want you, the idea of of long term planning is you set this vision because you want to achieve a goal, and I think the these uh, slight changes over the years of how we organize NASA to to meet that goal, I think that's important to understand so that we actually get to a point where you know we set a goal and we're going for it, and I believe. We're we're in that time now. We're setting we're setting goals, and and we're working hard to to make them a reality. Sure, sure. And you know, it uh, goes back to the old aphorism about you know if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's worth thinking about history in uh, what another colleague likes to call an applied history way. So it's not just um, ivory tower academics ruminating about things that happened many years ago that have no relevance to today. It's talking about things that are pretty directly relevant. That's right. Did you enjoy working on the book, uh, researching all the elements, doing, conducting all the interviews? Oh, I know I did. I, it, was, it was a lot of fun to do the oral history interviews and to work with Steve yeah, it was a great team effort. Uh, Glenn and I working together and many, many other people helped us in many ways. And one of the real rewards of this was that doing recent history, you have access to all these people who were involved in this. And they were very gracious with their time. They agreed to oral histories. They turned over notes and emails to us. So um, it was it made it much, much easier in that way. Yeah. Well, uh, gentlemen, I really appreciate your time today to, to take us through the, this period of time and go into detail. I know I really enjoyed reading this book, um, and it definitely set more context for me. You know, I haven't, I haven't been working here at NASA too long, so actually taking time to see what happened at NASA before I got here is, is actually uh, it, it, it's fascinating. And, and I really appreciate you sitting, sitting down and taking the time to, to talk with me about the book, <laughs> but again, also to, to write the book. Um, um, really appreciate the work that went into this. Well, thank you, Gary. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your support and interest. All right. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Really hope you enjoyed this deep dive into historical space policy with Steve Garber and Glenn Asner. And it was a very, it was a pleasure talking to them and it was a pleasure reading the book. And you can do it right now at nasa.gov slash ebooks. Again, the title of the book is, and it's a long one, Origins of 21st Century Space Travel, colon, A History of NASA's Decadal Planning Team and the Vision for Space Exploration, 1999 to 2004. If you like podcasts, uh, we dive into history a lot on this one. You can check out some of the others on nasa.gov slash podcasts. And we usually send out this podcast on some of the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have a question for us, use the hashtag NASA, ask NASA on your favorite platform, submit an idea for the show, make sure to mention it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. This episode was recorded on August 16th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Nora Moran, Pat Ryan, Cliff Feldman, and the Headquarters TV team. Thanks to Steve Garber and Glenn Asner for taking the time out of their day to speak with us from NASA Headquarters in Washington, D.C. We'll be back next week.